0: During the heyday of the Great Society and the War on Poverty, the federal government launched the Job Corps program. The idea behind Job Corps was to create centers around the country where young disadvantaged Americans could acquire job skills in a residential program that separated them from the social dysfunction of their home communities. The hope was that by providing both workforce development and a changed environment, Job Corps participants would awaken to the vast opportunities for personal development, growth, and economic opportunity that American society offered. This beautiful vision of Job Corps has never been realized. Instead, what's developed over the past 60 years is a program with uneven, and some would say disappointing, program outcomes. A 2018 audit by the Department of Labor's Inspector General concluded that the program, quote, could not demonstrate beneficial training outcomes. Job Corps, which cost taxpayers around $1.7 billion in 2019 to operate, has been remarkably resistant to reforms that might improve its results. With 131 centers serving around 40,000 students at a per head cost of between 15 and $40,000, the contractors who implement Job Corps on behalf of the federal government have perfected the art of political protection. No member of Congress with a Job Corps center really wants to see the program cut or even significantly changed because of how the centers provide employment, not to students, but to the adults who work at them. Like defense contractors who spread production jobs across as many states as possible to protect outmoded weapons systems. So, Job Corps centers and the jobs they create in local economies protect the program from serious changes and reforms. This week on Hardly Working, I'm joined by Ann Kim, an attorney, scholar, and researcher who's worked at a number of DC based think tanks and policy development organizations, to talk about her recent article reviewing the history and performance of the Job Corps program. Anne joined us last year for a conversation about her recent book, Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. Anne Kim, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working.
1: Thank you, Brent, for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Well, you're a return guest. You published a book within the last year on some of the challenges that disconnected youth, and there's a definition for that that you can tell us as we're discussing your more recent work. But you were on to talk about your book. And you've written this really interesting article for the Washington Monthly on a program called Job Corps, which I've had a little bit of exposure to during my time in the in the George W. Bush administration in both the faith-based and community initiative, which was my initial foray into it. And then also when I helped to lead the Employment and Training Administration. At that point, I think we were still in a position where... Job Corps was not part of ETA. It kind of moves in and out based on some kind of muddy political factors, I think. Mm -hmm. I wasn't directly administering the program, but it was something we always had to pay attention to because it's so large. It's such a big investment. So why don't you give us the big picture? What is Job Corps? Where did it come from? How does the network currently operate in terms of size and scope and spread across the country?
1: Sure, sure. So Job Corps is a program I actually got interested in and is part of the research for the book I wrote on um, youth disconnection. And just to back up for a little bit, we're talking about roughly 6 million, possibly as many as 10 million young people between the ages of 16 to 24 who are not in school and not working. So So that's the
0: the definition of a disconnected youth.
1: Correct. And there's no formal governmental definition for disconnected youth. This is one that researchers have kind of gravitated toward. But, you know, these are young people who have been completely cut off from the economic mainstream and have generally very poor outcomes if we cannot get them back into a work or school in any meaningful way. And the Job Corps program is the federal government's largest effort to try to reconnect young people who have been disconnected. It has roots in the war on poverty, as a matter of fact. It was founded in 1964 by Sergeant Shriver, who's a member of the Kennedy family. He's also the director of the Peace Corps. And the, there's a lot of idealism that kind of infuses the original mission of Job Corps. The idea was to put young people into these kind of idyllic rural settings, in many cases, apart from more negative influences in their lives, give them education, give them training, and then turn them out as productive members of society. And so over the years, there are now 123 Job Corps centers across the country. Many of them are in disused military facilities or disused schools. There have been some great successes over the years. The boxer, George Foreman, is probably one of the most famous graduates of Job Corps. And he was so grateful to the program that he actually repaid the federal government for that experience. Fast forward, though, more than 50 years. And there are some pretty serious questions about whether this residential model that Job Corps has is still suited for the challenges that disconnected young people today face. And there are a lot of, honestly, some pretty serious problems with the implementation of the program over the years and some research about whether it works. The short answer being it, it doesn't. To answer your question about how this program works, as I mentioned, there's 123 job course centers that are scattered around in all 50 states. And they're basically kind of like campus, the college campuses, although many of the facilities tend to be surrounded by high fencing, heavy security protocols. Contractors, for, typically for profit, are the ones who actually run these programs although the uh, USDA does still control about 24 of them
0: that the physical environment that you're describing is is remarkable because it's unclear whether that is to protect job corps students from outside influences or try to it looks an awful lot like a detention facility you know when you just when you're just looking at the optics of it you know is this really a place that people Choose to go to, or is it a place that we send people as sort of a quasi, you know, juvenile justice kind of facility? And that's been, always been one of my concerns: is that it doesn't really—it's a little—it's a little unclear when you look at it what the purpose of of some of the security features are.
1: Yeah, and it used to be the case, my understanding, until fairly recently, that there are quite a few students who were there under court order. And Mm -hmm. and that has apparently changed over the past few years. But on the security question, you know, the government audits by the Inspector General and the GAO just in 2016 and 2017. One of the things I mentioned in the article is that there were 13,500 safety incidents reported at Job Corps centers across the country, and about half of those more than 13,000 safety incidents involved drugs or assaults of some kind. In 2015, there were two separate murders to different facilities of students. So it's the residential model in some ways, despite its origins, what you're doing as one of the former staffers told me is you have kids who are facing just enormous challenges in their lives and they're kind of locked away in this isolated environment in kind of a pressure cooker, perhaps not with the best supports around them as far as staff and stuff happens.
0: So I had a couple of sort of related questions to this, which is, you're right, you know, we're taking kids who are have come up typically in some pretty traumatizing experiences and backgrounds, family situations, and we're moving a lot of kids with a lot of challenges together. And that means that there's a good opportunity there for those problems to feed off of one another in a in a closed setting. I was really curious when you were looking at this, do you think trauma is an explicit part of the program model? I mean, in terms of, you know, addressing and trying to remediate trauma, or is it, is it not sufficiently acknowledged among the kids that are, are among the administrators and the and the students who are going there?
1: Yeah, th- no, that's a really good point. We know a lot more about Positive youth development than we did 30 years ago. And Job Corps was started out as strictly an employment and training program. And that has not changed. It's difficult to get administrators to talk to me on the record. And I managed to get one who was a contractor at the time and then some former staff. But if you look at the more than 1,000 page long policy requirements handbook for Job Corps, out of all the pages that have to do with what to feed the kids, facilities, fire drills, poison control, et cetera, et cetera, there's nothing in there at all about required uh, mental health support or required wraparound supports that are trauma-informed in any way. And that is a tremendous failing of the program. And that's probably one of the reasons that explain why the outcomes for Job Corps are not as robust as they should be, given the amount of investment that is going into the program at the time. You mentioned $1.7 billion dollars That's a lot when we're talking about 40,000. Annually. Yeah. Yeah. Annually. That's right. That's right.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the outcomes that they're trying to produce. What kinds of employment outcomes are they getting?
1: Well, there were a series of really rigorous evaluations by uh, Mathematica. And what they found, the bottom line, is that among somewhat older youth who go into the program, those who are aged 20 to 24, there are some modest successes. So the 2018 evaluation that Mathematica did, looking at 20-year outcomes, found that among this group, they were 4.2 percentage points more likely to be employed 20 years later. They were like 1.4% more likely to file taxes and somewhat less likely to be on disability. And they calculated in inflation-adjusted dollars that the net benefit per enrollee for this age group, 20 to 24, was about $30,000. However, these older students, who may or may not have been likely to succeed anyway, you know, perhaps in other programs, are far outnumbered by the teenagers who go into this to the program, ages 16 and 19. These guys make up about 80% of those enrolled, and among that group, Job Corps doesn't work really at all. No discernible long-term effects on employment, earnings. Mathematically calculated that for teens, the net cost of Job Corps is about $17,800. So when you balance out the fewer numbers of older youth with the larger numbers of teens were more expensive as a whole the program is not cost effective.
0: So mm-hmm. it's not not being cost effective is one thing. I thought I read in the in your article that in terms of income of job core participants versus similarly situated individuals who did not take part in Job Corps, wages were actually a little bit lower. Is that right?
1: Yes, that is what one of the Inspector General audits found. That was also a 2018 audit. And and that goes to a lot of record-keeping problems, too, that a lot of the Job Corps Centers have. But for the records they were able to find, they concluded that a lot of people who went through the Job Corps program did not end up in jobs that paid them any better. In fact, a lot of enrollees ended up in exactly the same job that they had before they even enrolled in the program. Of the ones that they were able to document, they found that the median annual income for these enrollees in 2016 was a little bit above $12,000. And that's actually less than the median income for all workers without a high school diploma. So it could be that you know, who's going into Job Corps is affecting these outcomes too, but it doesn't seem terribly clear that the program is having much of an impact on bringing up the potential for students who are facing some pretty serious challenges as far as their employability.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because I keep seeing this popping up in various domains, reentry, homelessness, sort of economic opportunity programs, broadly speaking, the moving to opportunity program, where, you know, it's like, we've seen this in several different places. And it makes me think that, you know, that this could bear out to be, in fact, the case that people receiving interventions by many of our programs aren't doing better. In some cases, they're not doing as well as people who just kind of find their own way, which is really deeply discouraging. When you think about all the things that we're trying to do, that sort of take the form of interventions in the internal or interior lives of participants. That's the idea here is that with Job Corps, we're going to take people who are deeply challenged, big problems, lots of trauma, and we're going to fix them by moving them into this residential setting where they're separated from those problems and we can work with them and show them a different way. And what actually happens is not either not very much or in some cases, you know actually seems to result in worse outcomes than just leaving them alone and I'm not advocating for abandoning people but I do think it is it's something that we need to grapple with more broadly in the way that we think about and structure human and social services in this country I mean if we can get better outcomes but through mechanisms that provide support without interfering with the development of personal agency—we might be better off, or at least we need to. We need to think about trying that more often to see if that that bears out. I don't know if you've looked at any of those things or not, but
1: yeah, I, I think you put your finger on a really significant conundrum in all of this. You know, some of the most successful youth development programs are also the ones that are geared toward young people who have some inner potential, inner drive. You know, to succeed. So, for example, programs like Year Up, which is a year-long supported apprenticeship program focusing mostly on IT, they have a pretty rigorous screening process, and that probably accounts for some of this program's success. They have enormous success within earnings and income retention and placement. But they're also working with young people who are really motivated to succeed and may not have had the opportunities to get to where they want to be. Job Corps, too, is credit, or maybe that's not the right way to put it, but to explain kind of what's happening with Job Corps is a much more universal program. Unless you've been convicted of a violent felony, you're in. And so it's working with a population that has many more challenges, may not be as equally motivated, say, the average student may not be as equally driven as somebody who is enrolled in Europe or in some of the other programs that have shown to be more successful, simply because they're working with a much more challenged population and not with the same level of resources or flexibility that other programs that may be on a smaller scale and maybe more targeted in their approach have. It's a real problem as far as how do you scale up a federal program that is going to adequately serve as many young people who are in need of help right now as there are.
0: Yeah, no, and and again, it's like I was really quite moved by the quote that you had in there with another former colleague of mine, Grace Kilbang, talking about, you know, the the purposes and performance of job course. So why don't you talk a little bit about what she said? Because I don't want to go so far as to say like we need we just need to shut this down and there's no point to it because there actually is kind of a point to it. It's just not necessarily the point that the program is focused on.
1: Right, right. Yeah, so so Ms. Kilmaine, who is now on the board of the National Job Corps Association, was an administrator at ETA and then in charge of the Job Corps program. And what she said to me was that there are large numbers of young people who are in Job Corps basically because they have nowhere else to go. You know, they are homeless, they are runaway, they may have have home lives that make it absolutely impossible for them to thrive, and Job Corps gives them an oasis, a respite from that. And that is an important function of Job Corps. A minority of the uh, students who are there truly have nowhere to go. They have aged Mm -hmm. out of foster care. You know, they've been abandoned by other systems. However, what happens to these young people once they leave Job Corps? Is Mm -hmm. Job Corps adequately preparing them for life after the year, the year and a half that they are there? And that's, that's not at all clear. Moreover, Yes, Job Corps is going to help some people, but is the cost of the program, the $1.7 billion that we're spending on this program, are there more effective ways to deploy those resources to help more people? For example, should we be putting more money into transitional housing programs that are also intended to provide shelter plus wraparound supports for homeless and and youth and and former foster youth and runaways in a community-based setting? Would that be a more effective way to help young people in who may be facing home, experiencing homelessness or other challenges other than Job Corps? And, and that's a question that we haven't adequately explored, I don't think.
0: Why don't you think we haven't explored it?
1: Well, you know, Job Corps is something of a sacred cow. No one wants to directly challenge Job Corps for a variety of reasons, which I touch on in the article. Number one is that Job Corps employs people. There's a job course center in all 50 states, and a lot of them are in rural areas, and they are a source of employment. Number two, there's not a lot of money, a lot of a lot of money anyway that goes to helping disconnected youth. And you don't want to attack a program that is the largest program for this population, because if the knee jerker's response is to get rid of the program. Then what's happened is that young people in dire need of help are now $1.7 billion less likely to get the help that they need. So, you know, at least among liberals, it's better to have a defective program than to have nothing at all. Just because of the the way that congressional debates tend to go But ineffective programs, oftentimes a conversation is just about, well, let's get rid of it, rather than let's do the work into reforming it and putting in some hard thought into how to make something better. Number three, I mentioned before that the program is run by typically for-profit contractors. A lot of them have had these contracts for a really long time, some of them since the genesis of the program. And they have a pretty powerful hold on the operation of the program and how it runs. And they have been able to kind of wait out administrations (laughs) that come and go and they do not. And they're, I think, a fairly powerful resistor to change because they don't want to lose the dollars that are attached to running these contracts, which run into tens of millions of dollars. And by the way, just as an aside, many of the government audits that have looked into the contracting process have found that these contracts oftentimes are reward, are awarded on a non-competitive basis. So there's a lot of incentive for the contractors to hang on to uh, what they have and exactly the conditions that they have now.
0: Just as an outside observer of the program, when I was at the labor department, I mean, we saw this of you've got maybe an underperforming site and rather than end the contract and bid it out, there's kind of a long and protracted process of bridge contracts and temporary extensions and things just keep rolling along because it's just too difficult. Defund these existing contractors because their their political clout is so great, and they can, like you said, wait out via lawsuits, all sorts of mechanisms to prevent things from changing. It really makes you wonder. I mean, to me, it's quite reminiscent of what we see on the defense side of the of the budget. You know where. The defense contractors are pretty good about spreading out the production of weapon systems to enough states that it's very difficult then to eliminate that because there's you know there's a critical mass of members of Congress who don't want to see that program go away because it provides employment for people living in their states and districts.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I talked to a former official who uh, didn't want to be quoted by name, but who told me that. They had a conversation with a congressperson about a particularly poorly performing contract in their district, and the congressperson shut down the conversation from the start. This official even said to the congressperson, like, I wouldn't send my own kids to this place, but it's like, no, 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 you know, we have to have it here. You know, it's important to the district. That is where politics meets. Politics can often be right. (laughs) (laughs) It's often, well, I don't want to say often, but sometimes the enemy of good outcomes and in the intervening years when a poorly performing contractor has been informed that they're going to lose their contract and then they file a a protest against it and they have to find somebody else there are all these young people who are churning through the program not getting the help they need i think that is you know one of the larger tragedies of what's going on here is while these bureaucratic fights are going on over whether the contractor is going to lose the contract or not These kids are coming through, and they are likely not being benefited if who's in place is the underperforming contractor that DOL has been trying to replace. One other thing I'll add on this front, I mentioned the 1,000-plus page policy requirements handbook. It has the effect of calcifying the monopoly that the contractors have because no one can implement the program to DOL specifications other than these contractors who have had these contracts for a long time. So if you are a small business, for instance, or trying to break into the job core business, good luck because you're not going to have a lot of, it's going to be very difficult to stand up a job core center exactly to the way that DOL has wanted and to compete with these contractors who have been in the business for 30, 40 years and can outbid you and know the process much better than you can. So that's another reason why the world of contracting within job corps is as small as it has been. And another yeah. reason why these non-competitive bridge contracts continue cuz there's no one else to give the contracts to.
0: Right. You can't get the work without the experience. You can't get the experience without the work, and that's the way it's set up to maintain these not exactly a monopoly, but an oligopoly of some sort. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, because there are actually multiple companies that have these contracts, but it functions, it sounds like it's functioning kind of like a guild where it's designed to keep competition out. I wonder if anybody has ever thought about a system in which Job Corps eligible youth could choose between, you know, sort of the site based residential program and a bucket of resources or a voucher of some sort that would allow them to choose a training program or an, an apprenticeship or some other you know, alternative training approach just to see, you know, is it—is it really a function that these kids are just so, have such tremendous need that nothing can help? Or is it possible that, you know, by tapping into their kind of their personal agency and their desire and interests, more kids might be successful?
1: Yeah, I, that, that's a really good, good thought. I think it would be something that's worth trying. I mean, one of the things that hasn't happened at Job Corps is the level. There have been some experiments, experimentation. There have been more efforts to try to get uh, commuting programs in play, that kind of thing. A couple of thoughts. One is I think young people are going to need a lot more guidance and choosing which approaches might work best for them. One thing that Job Corps does is they have very snazzy recruiting campaigns. And you look on the website and the You know, descriptions of the facilities. We have a pool. We have a fitness center. We get to go to movies, things that draw in young people who may not have a whole lot of experience in figuring out what is the best approach for them. In the course of my reporting, I came across the Philadelphia Youth Network, which acts as an intermediary for all of the youth serving organizations in the Philadelphia metro area. And I think they could be an excellent model for the kind of guidance that might be helpful if. You young people were to have that kind of voucher model or that kind of choice driven model that you're talking about, Brent. I think you would need an intermediary like the Philadelphia Youth Network, which does an assessment, has basically case management and counseling so that a young person can decide, well, maybe Job Corps is the right model for me, or maybe it's Europe, or maybe it's an apprenticeship, or maybe. You know, it's National Guard Youth Challenge, which is another residential program that's shown to be more effective for teenagers than Job Corps. But that kind of infrastructure does not exist outside of Philadelphia Youth Network or outside the really kind of sporadic, philanthropically driven efforts to create some new models. It's the federal government that's the big gorilla here that's got to think about some new approaches so that there are experimenta- experiments with the kinds of things that you're talking about, Brent, that could really make a difference in young person's lives.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, the challenge is always, I think, finding those models, those kind of coaching models that don't tip over into anything too prescriptive. Because one of the one of the habits we're trying to break is a deprivation of decision-making power among people who often haven't had the opportunity to develop, you know, sort of their own decision-making power. So, but, but there are good models out there for doing that. Empath does a great job on this as we explored in the non-cognitive volume that will be coming out soon. You know, there are approaches that try to blend guidance with opportunity in a way that leaves people, you know, with a sense that, you know, they're making the choice rather than somebody else making the choice for them. So anyway, that's kind of the, I'd love to learn more about the Philadelphia Youth Network approach to doing this because I do think it's, you're right, young people who, you know, come from very disadvantaged backgrounds, how would they begin the process of sorting, even sorting through their options, setting goals, sorting through options, those things are really fundamental to later success. They're really the building blocks.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I would actually say that one of the problems with the job core model too is that it may not actually help young people develop that sense of agency you've been talking about. You know, when I talk to former students, I just see in the article, the scheduling on job core is very, their life in job core centers is very regimented. You know, you're up at a certain hour, you get breakfast at a certain hour, you go to class at a certain hour, you know, you get your drug tests periodically. You know, things are very, People are told what to do. I don't know, there's no research to back this up, but it's possible that, you know, people who may do okay inside the confines of Job Core, that, that transition period may not work out <laughs> as well as it should, or the program itself is not imparting the skills for a successful transition.
0: Once yeah, I mean, this This comes up all the time in re-entry programming. And, you know, looping back to the beginning of this conversation, when we were talking about is this a detention facility or a job training program, that's one of the things that makes it resemble, makes Job core resemble, or one of the characteristics of a detention program is that kind of extreme regimentation, which I agree just logically doesn't really Support this idea of developing agency. If every decision is made for you, where is your opportunity to learn decision making skills, except to sit in a classroom and told that you need to, you know, you really need to make better decisions? That's not effective. People need an opportunity to learn. That includes failing, that includes messing up. Again, you can't, it's not a light switch. You can't flip it on, but you can, I think, build that capacity over time. And that's what programs like Empath and others. Or sort of pointing us toward is, it is a matter of building up executive function skills inside people, helping them to develop those skills. But it takes time and it takes a lot of patience to do it. And so we we fall back on what we know best, which is here. Just do this, follow these rules, and you'll be fine. It doesn't work that way.
1: No, I, I I think I think
0: that's right. So I wanted to maybe spend a few minutes before we wrap up and you reference this in the article and it's something i've been thinking about a lot to sort of the unique circumstances presented by covid and i don't just mean the way that it has impacted site job core site operations which you can talk about a little bit just to sort of give people a sense for what's happened on that like any other residential program or college or university it's had some pretty significant struggles but the employment picture, the way that the, the pandemic has affected job opportunities. Why don't you talk about those two items, sort of how how the pandemic has affected operations, but then also how it's affecting placement and job opportunities?
1: Yeah, I, you know, the Job Corps program has been kind of limping along for decades, you know, with no one paying too much attention to it. But I do think that the pandemic has brought the inadequacies of the program, for lack of a better word, to a head. This residential model that Job Corps runs on is uniquely ill-suited to a pandemic. There was was a uh, government audit of the uh, program's transition to online, which kind of didn't happen at all, really. They sent home everyone, save for several hundred Job Corps enrollees who are homeless and otherwise had nowhere to go. I talked to people in background about the online transition The government had a hard time procuring laptops. I'm not sure that they ever successfully deployed all the devices necessary to get Job Corps people online. It's very hard to do job training in a virtual environment, especially when you're talking about the kinds of training that Job Corps centers offered, which is in welding, electrical, things that are very hands-on. And the enrollment, according to the figures you can find on the Job Corps website, dropped to about a fourth of what it was last year. So it's gonna take a while for Job Corps to even build back its enrollment to where it was and who knows what has happened to the, I guess, 30,000 students who were part of the program and who basically disappeared during the pandemic. The second part of your question about employment opportunities, we are talking about, it's not clear exactly how many young people are now out of school and out of work. The most conservative estimate is 6 million. Other estimates I've seen have been closer to 10 million young people. As we know, a lot of young people are in jobs that have disappeared in the pandemic. A lot of young people were in retail. They were in hospitality. They were in food service. A lot of them have dropped out of school. A lot of them are not going to higher education. So we are facing this other epidemic happening after the pandemic of potentially a huge cohort of young people who do not have the skills to take on the next generation of jobs, which are likely going to require more post-secondary education, they're gonna be more highly automated, and the skills gap has become, I guess, a skills chasm as far as these young people are concerned. And what I'm hoping is that whatever conversations are going to be happening around the infrastructure bill, however you define infrastructure, Mm-hmm. That is the $100 billion or so that the Biden administration has earmarked or has proposed for spending on workforce development. But a good chunk of that is devoted to thinking about new approaches for helping this generation of young people who have been left behind in the pandemic refresh their skills, improve their skills, and reconnect to, to school and work in meaningful ways that will allow them to at least catch up in terms of what they've lost over this past year. What we don't want is a repeat of what's happened to some pe- a lot of people in the millennial generation, who similarly did not have opportunities coming out of the Great Recession and are now really behind as far as you know wealth accumulation, homeownership rates, earnings. We-, we can't afford another generation to have fallen behind in that way. Just it's catastrophic for where equality is going to in, in for in terms of our inequality in coming years and the potential that we've lost if we can't help these young people catch up.
0: Yeah, I thank you. That's a great overview. I've got a piece coming out in USA Today soon. Hopefully, by the time we post this, it'll be out and you, we'll just link it in the show notes. But there are a number of sort of segments of American society that have borne the brunt of job losses and youth is right at the top in terms of the number of people who lost jobs and are either on unemployment or have become discouraged workers and dropped out of the workforce. These service sector jobs are going to come back only slowly, and maybe not at all for many of them. The economy has been transformed. We've had a a decade of transformation in one year in terms of changes that we could see coming but have just been accelerated by the pandemic, and I just really worry. As you do, that the economy reopens, but it's a different economy, and that those entry level jobs that give people that first crack at job skills and you know interpersonal skill development and all of those things that we all learn in those or those early jobs are just not going to be there. and i I honestly it's it's a befuddling problem in terms of what to do about it because it is a Primarily, human capital problem. As we know, human capital is very difficult, very expensive to try to develop. So, what I'm gathering out of this conversation is that we've got a very large investment going on, annual investment of 1.7 billion dollars a year into the Job Corps program, which doesn't seem to have yielded us very much over time. And it's time for a a really thorough look at how this program might be reformed, how it might benefit from additional competition, different additional forms of competition that would serve the interests of students rather than just the interests of the people who operate and work at Job Corps sites. So, great piece and can't recommend it highly enough for listeners of this podcast. We'll make sure that we link it and highlight it whenever we can. So, I so appreciate, again, you taking the time to kind of walk us through what you learn in researching that piece.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a privilege.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.